Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The diva is a common trope when we talk about culture. We normally think of the diva as a Western construction, the opera singer, the Broadway actress, the movie star, a woman of outstanding talent whose personality and ability are both larger than life. But the truth is, throughout history, many cultures have featured spaces for strong female artists whose talent allows them to break free of the gender roles that pervaded their societies. In three Asian divas, women, art, and culture, in Shiraz, Delhi, and Yangzhou, David Chaffetz briefly explores how these Asian divas could be seen as some of the first recognizably modern women. After studying Persian, Turkish, and Arabic in college, David Chaffetz worked on the publication of the Encyclopedia Ironica and is also the author of A Journey Through Afghanistan, a study of its varied people, social classes, and religious sects. He has lived in Afghanistan, Iran, and Turkey and traveled extensively in Asia. After a 40-year break working in the technology industry, he returned to writing with three Asian divas. Today, Dave and I will talk about the three different cultures of three Asian divas, Shiraz, Delhi, and Yangzhou. We'll talk about what it means to be a, meant to be a diva in these historic contexts and what they say about gender roles in 19th century Asia. So, David, perhaps the best place to start is to ask, what is a diva and why write about them? Yes, Nicholas, so you gave a good definition of the diva in the Western context particularly in the modern usage uh, when we're talking about people like Maria Callas or Renee Fleming. But of course, that usage goes back to the beginning of the opera in, in, in Europe. It goes back to the Italian opera singers of the 17th and 18th century. Uh, but before then, people tended to call those women courtesans. And in Asia, in the literature referring to the women that I call divas, they're very often referred to as courtesans. And I wanted to avoid that word because while it started off as a fairly prestigious uh, nomenclature for the kind of talented women uh, that you described, over time it came to mean simply a woman living from her charms. And it's become detached from the concept of someone who is a great performer and a great artist whereas the word diva uh, retains those meanings. So I want to use the word, the Western word diva, to refer to the very talented courtesans of Asia, of India, Iran, and, and China, uh, where I think it's, it's, it brings out what's really uh, unique and specific about these women, whereas the word courtesan uh, does not. What's interesting is that in the three languages uh, of, the, of the book, um, Persian, Persian Urdu, and uh, Chinese, only the Chinese term literally means uh, diva. I think mingjie in Chinese means renowned performer, which is exactly what a diva is. The other two words uh, in Persian, mogani, uh, which means singer, uh, and tawayef in um, Indian usage means member of a performing troupe are not very prestigious or distinguished. Um, so it's, it's, it's as though only the Chinese recognize that these women are really very special. 
Um, and, and that comforts me in the use of the word diva. I guess, do you, do you have any theories why, I, I, I guess, how, how the term courtesan got applied to these different entertainers and how that term perhaps got its slightly shadier connotations in recent years? Well, that seems to be a general phenomenon um, in this line of business, if I may call it that. Uh, because um, if you ask a young Chinese person today, what is a minjie? She will say, he will say, oh, it means prostitute. So even in contemporary Chinese, the word minjie has become um, devalued. That's partly because this line of business was always a little bit uh, marginal from the conventional social um, values of, of, of all societies from Europe to China. And, and that's something we probably should talk a little bit about. But it's also because over time, um, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And as the, as the uh, institution e exists for a very long time, you have to keep on coming up with new words to indicate how, how these women who are very talented are different from women who are just sort of run-of-the-mill entertainers. Um, so I, I think today we use the word diva because it's a relatively um, rich and, and exotic word, and it kind of keeps that focus on why these women are very extraordinary, um, whereas words, older words like courtesan have become, with time, very devalued. So I'd like to kind of talk through the the three examples um, of three Asian divas. Um, first of all, the first one is Shiraz. So in the period we're talking about, what is Shiraz like? And what role do the Mogani play in, mm. in Shiraz society? Mm -hmm. So um, Shiraz, um, maybe not everybody knows, is one of the, is still one of the very important cities in Iran. It's kind of a desert oasis city in the, in the Zagros Mountains. Um, it has been an important city for many, many centuries. But in the 14th century, which is the period that I focused on for this chapter in the book, it is a kind of oasis of peace, um, a little bit like Lisbon during World War II. There's warfare in many other parts of Iran, uh, because the descendants of Genghis Khan are trying to fight for control of Iran and, and land adjacent. And uh, Shiraz has a series of rulers who stay out of all the messy fray, and they invite or they entice lots of poets and musicians and artists. And so it's a very happy place for the most part. Um, and what we find is a play out of Iranian poets who more or less create the canon of classical Persian poetry at this time. Um, there were even the, the only, uh, um, one of the very few uh, female poets, a woman named uh, Malik Khatun, is also uh, a contemporary of this period. So it's a very, very glorious period in Persian uh, letters. We suspect it's also a very glorious period in music, although it's extremely difficult for us to construct the world of music um, in Iran before the 19th century. A lot of musical tradition had been lost, but from the ambiance, which is described in the poetry, you get the feeling 
that people spend a lot of time listening to music, musical concerts, and that in these musical concerts, there would have been um, singers and dancers, which in Persian are called Mughani. Now, what was the role of the Maganis? What was the role of the divas? i just take you to the curious fact that the greatest Persian poet, Hafez, performed in Shiraz in this period, around 1400. And within a few years of his performing in Shiraz, his poetry was famous all over the world where Persian was spoken, in Gujarat, in India. One of the sultans invited uh, Hafez to come visit him. So you ask yourself, how did Hafez's poetry get uh, recited in Gujarat just a couple of years after he wrote it in Shiraz? And I think the answer is that the Mughanis traveled and they were a little bit like Spotify. They popularized famous poems and um, made them known to cultivated audiences all over, all over the world, the Persian-speaking world. I really don't think that it was manuscripts that traveled because it takes time to write a manuscript. You can only have a few number of manuscripts at any period of time. And really importantly is that poetry is an oral form. And I don't see the Sultan of Gujarat sitting around reading manuscripts uh, of poetry, whereas he would have had singing girls performing for him. So I, 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 this was sort of the clue to me that there is a phenomenon here that um, the singing girls of Shiraz, the Mughani, were a really critical institution for popularizing the classics, what become the classics, for diffusing them across the Persian-speaking world, and for sort of shifting out who, which of the many talented poets of Shiraz would become the most famous poets in, in the Persian canon. And, and I think that's the role uh, that the Mughani play. And I, I look for evidence of the similar uh, role in India and China. And I think, I think that confirms that this is one of the most important aspects of, of one of the most important um, roles they play in history. Um, I would like to move on to talking about Indian Delhi, but before we do that, I'd, I'd like a, I'd like a pronunciation check on, on my part. Um, so the Magani are in Shiraz and it's the, uh, Tawaif in, in Delhi, or is that the, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I've got the pronunciation, right? Excellent. Um, but okay. So let's, 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 yes. Well, as, as best as one can, um, but let's but 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 let's move on to India and kind of first of all I guess what what was Delhi like um, at this period of time and I think you've already said that the that the Tawaif you think play a similar role in in Delhi but maybe you can just go into that a little bit in yeah. the Indian context yeah well there's a couple things uh, I need to say something uh, for the listeners that I picked uh, three different performances right Shiraz Delhi Zhengzhou and they are three different. Um, periods in history. The phenomenon of the divas, the importance of the divas is, is a pretty, fills a pretty broad historical uh, stage from um, very, let's say, from Han Dynasty China, let's say 100 AD, uh, up until the beginning of the 19th century. So I've simply picked three exam examples 
um, at different points in time. So Shiraz was 14th century. In India, we skip to the 1840s. Um, not that I could not have found a similar example in the 15th century, but it's just the luck of the draw was it was a more interesting opportunity to talk about uh, India at Delhi at the end of the Mughal Empire uh, on the eve of this very tragic event, which the Indians refer to as the first Indian War of Independence in which the British used to refer to as the Indian Mutiny. So Delhi in the 1840s was having a cultural comeback. Uh, it had been sacked several times by the Persians, the Afghans, and the Marathas, and all the poets, patrons, and singers had scurried off to Lucknow and Hyderabad and other formerly provincial capitals. But under the last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah, uh, Delhi was having a cultural comeback and was beginning to um, gather in men of letters, very importantly, musicians, um, and uh, a flourishing Tawaiyaf culture. Um, because we're talking about a much closer historical period now, 1840, we know a lot more about this period. There's much more documentation. And very importantly, I mentioned um, how in Shiraz, we suspect music was very important, but we don't actually have the music. In this case, in the 1840s, from the 1840s, we have musical manuscripts. Um, we have traditions of music coming down to us that was taught from, from teacher to student in an unbroken chain from this period of time. And so we have a very good idea um, what this what kind of singing was done and how the Tawaif in particular uh, took poetry and and trans tran, and vehiculated it, let's say, vehiculated the poetry through song and music, which um, I think is a really important point for trying to under, for trying to appreciate and understand uh, Persian or Urdu. Uh, Poetry. So the um, and if, and we know a lot more about the Tawayafs of the 1840s because that institution survived in one form or another up to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so we know um, how they were taught, uh, how they were taught to write and to uh, recite poetry, to sing, to dance. They were taught the arts of polite conversation. They were taught. Um, how to handle very you know, important people, princes, kings, um, generals. Um, they even entertained the uh, leading British officials of the East India Company. Um, and we have reports of, of, uh, of British visitors to, to Tawaiyaf performances and, um, and how the British appreciated more or less what they were hearing. Of course, in those days, many of the British uh, spoke Persian and Urdu, and some of them even composed poetry in Persian and Urdu. So there was a lot more uh, international appreciation of this art then than there probably is now. Uh, so that that's um, that gives you a picture of, of Delhi in this period. And if I was going to say, is there a difference between the Tawayafs in this 19th century um, Indian framework and the um, uh, the 14th century Iranian framework, I would say the Tawayafs are, are part of a much, much 
older tradition in India that goes back to it goes back to classical Sanskrit theater, um, where they play almost the role of sort of sacerdotal um, courtesans. And of course, you have you have the Devi Dasi in um, in India, which is a sacerdotal courtesan exactly. Uh, and I think that, that creates a somewhat special uh, aura around these women, uh, as opposed to Iran, where I think that there was never any religious or quasi-religious um, aspect to them, and it always was simply a form of very elevated entertainment. So we should probably, you know, before we talk about all all three of these divas in general, we have to end with um, with Yangzhou, which is the third city you talk about in three Asian divas. Um, so in the period we're talking about, which I believe is the is the Ming Dynasty, what's what's that city and society like? And finally, um, who are who are the Mingji? And I guess in some ways, how are they how are they similar and how are they different from the Mogani and the Tawaif? Yeah. So um, so for the non-Chinese listeners, um, Yangzhou is a city on the Yangtze River, um, sort of midway up, I guess you could say. Um, it's an extreme. It is still, but in those days, it was a very wealthy city. It was. Um, given the monopoly on salt in the entire uh, Ming Empire. So this created a coterie of very wealthy merchants um, who attracted uh, literary people uh, for entertainment or for business. And because it was not a capital, it wasn't wasn't Nanjing, um, the intellectual and political environment in the city was much freer than that uh, of an official capital. And um, as a result, um, they developed a very laid back kind of vibe, uh, which was uh, where people would come uh, from all over the country to to make their name in, in performance. So I, I would I'd use the analogy, it was a little bit like Hollywood in the 1930s. Um, the institution of Mingjie, the renowned performers uh, we know in China dates back to the Han Dynasty and possibly earlier. Uh, but what's interesting is that when we see them at the beginning uh, of uh, Chinese history, they work for the state. The state has a ministry called the Ministry of Merriment, um, and the Mingji are employees. So whenever the emperor gives a big feast or there's a holiday, these women are deployed uh, to perform. Uh, entertainment. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, the the last Olympic Games in Beijing, you have these fabulous spectacles uh, being put on by the Chinese state. And I think the Chinese state has always had that capability. Uh, what happened is over time, as society became richer and a little bit more bourgeois, particularly under the Song Dynasty, the Mingjis got... Um, their freedom from the state and started to operate on their own. And um, it was a fairly big business uh, and it was a female run business. And they branched out into putting on opera, putting on public performances when these were not banned on the basis of protecting public morals. And this made them extremely wealthy. 
So if I want to contrast the um, Chinese Mingzhi with the Indian Taoyef, I would say that Chinese Mingzhi had the ability to project themselves on a wider, uh, in, a, in a more public format. Um, and, and that's why we see them um, as uh, theatrical entrepreneurs, as stage managers, as uh, uh, dramatists, uh, and they've ascent, and they essentially create one of the earlier forms of what we would call Chinese opera, which is the Kung Chu opera. So um, it, it just had as many things do in China compared to the rest of the world, bigger scale, uh, and and in that respect, I think they had a a more uh, a bigger impact on public culture than the Tawaiyaf, who always played uh, privately. So in Three Asian Divas, it it argues that you could see these entertainers as some of the first recognizably modern women. Um, and I'd like to delve a bit deeper into that. In what ways do the Mogani, the Tawaif, and, and the Mingzhi, do they act as predecessors to our modern ideas of, of gender and gender roles? Yeah. Well, uh... It's always um, a little bit problematic to try to understand um, gender roles in the past. Um, uh, and there's a danger of obviously of seeing things through our own lens or, or um, either seeing the past as being very benighted and, and of course we're much more enlightened or seeing the past as being just an extension of our own views. Um, but, but I would argue that um, traditional world um, pre-19th century in most of the world, uh, people pretty much did not have agency. Um, even the wealthy, even the nobles, were locked in a, a very rigid, um, a rigid set of expectations in terms of their obligations and their privileges vis-a-vis uh, -vis other people in society. And um, you don't find a lot of agency. Uh, even Bahadur Shah, emperor of the Mughals, sitting in Delhi, was basically a prisoner in the palace. And, um, of course, he ended very badly because he was manipulated into supporting the revolution against the British. So how much agency did he really have? Um, but I think creative people, people who compose music, uh, who, who compose poetry, who perform poetry, there is just something very free about that. And, um, you know, getting up on the stage in front of a bunch of people and, and debuting a new poem or a new song, which becomes a hit, which becomes uh, part of the, the classics, which people will be reciting for, for generations thereafter. That's a very powerful source of agency. Um, so I, I attribute a lot of agency to these um, to these women in, in the three uh, cultures we talk about. A um, couple other things. Um, they also enjoyed, it has to be remembered, a very uh, thorough education. If, if we talk about the Chinese for a second, these women would have read the Chinese classics. They would have um, mastered the, uh, the various genres of Chinese poetry. Uh, one of them, very well-known, um, published a, a compendium of Tang Dynasty poetry, 
This is in the Ming Dynasty period. Um, so they were very well educated. And of course, that kind of education tends to give you uh, a sense of empowerment and a sense of, of enlightenment, which, which is rare um, among anybody in those days, let alone among women. And then finally, they had a certain amount of power because they were wealthy and they had amazing social capital because they, because they frequented the, uh, the most powerful people in, in their societies. Um, and they could use their power for better or worse uh, on, be, on behalf of their own agendas. So the agency, the level of education and their social power all um, makes them very different from other people of the period and particularly other women. And um, if we think about what women uh, are, are trying to assert in, in our society, which is they can, they can be as powerful as men or they are as powerful as men, they should not feel that they're not entitled to asserting that power, then I think uh, women could look at the, the Mingji or the Tawaiyaf of previous years and, and say these women, uh, they, all, they had it all. You know, one one thing the book notes is that is that all three, um, the Mogani, the Tawaiyaf, and, and the Mingji, were free to, quote, love whom they wished. Um, did these historical societies have the same, for lack of a better word, let's call them uh, sexual hang-ups as their Western counterparts? Were these hang-ups expressed differently? And I guess importantly, how were these three class maritainers able to break free of, of those strictures? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, again, it's very hard to know exactly what people thought about love and sex in the past, just as it's hard to know what they think about it now. Um, there, in some fundamental level, um, European and, and Asian relations between men and women are not have never been fundamentally different. Um, uh, so you have to... <laughs> You have to be careful to, to try to think that there's any big difference in the way they thought about these things. But, I, but if I, I could point to one distinguishing factor uh, between Asia and, and uh, Europe, in fact, it's probably the thing that makes Asia and Europe the most different, is the institution of marriage and the social segregation of sexes. Um, in all three countries that we're talking about here, Iran, India, and China, there is polygamy and there is purda, that is to say, social separation of the sexes. So the women live in a parallel universe. Um, they're not integrated into society the way they are in Western society uh, in any historical period. Until until the nineteenth century, so that seems very harsh, but it also gives them a tremendous amount of freedom because they operate within their own rules in a universe which they completely control. Um, I, I give you an example of the difference between Asia and Europe in that respect. Here in Portugal, we have the famous opera singer Elizabeth Todi. Uh, who was a great diva of the um, late 18th century and traveled all over um, Europe giving performances. 
But here in Portugal, she was never allowed to perform in public. She could only perform privately in the court because um, the, uh, the state felt that a woman performing in public was a bad thing and shouldn't be, shouldn't be permitted. Um, in, in India or in China, that would have been, um, people would have said, well, of course she performs in public, but I would never go, but I would never go there with my wife. My wife is in Burda. So the fact that you have this very strong segregation between the male space and the female space means that the diva can, can perform for males, exclusively for males, really. Um, and, and there's no um, afterthoughts, there's no regrets, there's no, there's no concerns that she might um, undermine the social order. Uh, whereas in Europe, the fear was these women could undermine the social order. So uh, in that respect, the, the greater lack of freedom of women in general gave uh, the divas in some sense uh, more freedom. So I had one question about about your thought process behind writing the book. Um, you've structured the book around three, let's, let's call them reconstructed performances. Um, why did you make that stylistic choice in writing Three Asian Divas? Yes. So each of the chapters takes one of the venues and one of the singers and sort of takes the reader through a performance. Uh, I believe that uh, the, for most of our history, the, the way we have appreciated poetry has been spoken or sung. It is a relatively recent phenomenon for people to read poetry in a book. Um, and I, and particularly with respect to some of the poems that I I, I used in the book, when I read the poems, of course, I read them, I didn't sing them. I was really struck by how song-like they are. And I wanted to experience them as song. In the case of the Chinese and the Indian uh, poems, because uh, the, the, we're not talking about a, a historical period too far away, um, I'm able to find them um, on YouTube or, or somewhere as um, um, as performances. In the case of the Iranian poem, I, I found all these uh, modern performances, um, but I didn't think that they were very accurate. So I did some research to try to find out how they might have been performed in, in the traditional sense. And um, I think I, I want people to appreciate poetry um, as a musical entertainment um, and realize that a lot of the buzz around these poems comes from the fact that they were once performed so memorably as live performances that the reason why they're in our school books, the reason why they are considered part of the canon is because the original performance um, was such a hit. And indeed, uh, I have... Um, some Chinese commentators from the 16th, 17th century saying that the main reason why these poems are so successful is because so-and-so sang them at such and such a time. So you really, you really see even the contemporaries realize 
that the performances were critical to the critical were were critical to the success of these poems. So I had one final question about uh, about three Asian divas. Um, are any of these of these art forms, these performances in three Asian divas, are they still present today, or have they influenced more contemporary art forms? I, I note the the irony in mentioned well that you mentioned in three Asian divas that poets of the time in in India were most proud of their work in Persian, but it's their work in Urdu that has survived to the present day. Yeah, because because um, over time uh, the Indians have stopped learning Persian as a important language for them. And, and, and so, of course, the Urdu uh, poems or um, Urdu-Hindi poems are, are obviously more popular. They're, they're still more or less understandable um, by people today. So, so let's say in, in Iran, the problem is that although there was a great revival of singing poetry in the 20th century, um, today, women are not allowed to perform in public um, or not allowed to perform music in Iran. So, so the tradition of, of female singers in Iran is in suspension for the moment. There is a great enthusiasm for performing uh, classical Iranian poetry set to music. There are many composers. Uh, there's a, a great musician named Shariani who just died, um, considered to be one of the great um, interpreter to Persian poetry uh, in a musical form. But again, they are men, and, and it become a very male-dominated uh, um, genre in Iran anyway. Um, in India, what has happened is that the music, musical families, the musical tradition that once performed uh, with and for the Tawayafs eventually made it to Bollywood. Um, if you notice in Bollywood film credits, how many of the musicians and singers are Muslims? It's because the Tawaif class really um, survived in Bollywood and thrived in Bollywood um, by translating themselves into modern uh, um, modern uh, movie uh, actors, singers, dancers, um, and, and composers. So um, what's happened is it becomes, of course, quite dumbed down. Uh, some of the great classical singers were asked to, to make their songs more pop, and, and they resisted. But now it's become terribly pop, and uh, the tradition of singing that kind of music has, has really faded. And the, People my age, and I'm, I'm in my 60s, they will still have favorite singers uh, from the 1950s who sang pretty much um, classical or do uh, poetry in, in the proper form uh, to the appropriate music. But I, I suspect that the younger generation is not so interested in that anymore. In China, uh, there has been a big revival of the Kung Chu uh, opera form. Uh, particularly um, n recognizing the fact that it was an opera form uh, uh, invented by women or, or popularized by women. So there are in Shanghai uh, some troops which are all women uh, that perform all the roles. Uh, and 
it's it's sort of hanging in there. Of course, it has a lot of, of uh, state support, as opera does all over the world. But you can't really see see it as a flourishing art form. Um, and I, and I, I think the general view is it's not doing that well because it is not uh, that popular or that accessible. But you do have um, you do have some aficionados. So in a way, it's no worse off than opera in the Western world. Um, but it's an opera of repertory, of course. It's no longer an opera of creation. Um, so that, that gives you a survey of where this art form is. Um, it's like many high art forms. It requires so much training on the part of the performers and so much um, implicit knowledge on the part of the audience that it's often hard to sustain that kind of, of art over a long period of time with a modern audience. So with that, that ends our interview with David Chaffetz, author of Three Asian Divas, Women, Art, and Culture in Shiraz, Delhi, and Yangzhou. One final question, David. Um, where can people find your work, and uh, what's your next project? Oh, they, they can find my work on Amazon. If they're in Hong Kong, they can find it at the Foreign Correspondents Club. And I'm in the middle of writing... A much, much longer, quite complicated book about the vital role of horses in Asian history. Thanks for asking. Um, any, um, I guess how how far are you how far along are you uh, with that project, or have you only just started? I've written about one hundred and fifty thousand words, and now I need to pare it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're so you're in that stage of the project. Um, well. You can yeah. follow me, Nick, yeah. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, thanks again so much, David, for joining me today. Thanks, Nicholas. Have a good day.